You're listening to episode 147 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? You'll notice that I'm dropping today's episode on a Friday instead of our usual Thursdays. In case you missed my update on Twitter or in 88 Cups of Tea's private Facebook group, I've been recovering from a fever these past few days, and for the past few weeks, I've been experiencing sharp pain all around my shoulders and neck and recurring pounding headaches and numbness in my arms, which has gotten worse over time. I just found out a few days ago that these pains have been caused by a pinched nerve and compression in my upper spine from averaging 14 hours on the laptop, basically on the daily. My pain level was at an all-time high yesterday, along with a sharp pounding headache every time I looked at the screen, and I could not manage to release the episode on time and needed to step away from all electronics, including my phone. The chiropractor said that the best way to heal is to minimize the hours I'm spending on my laptop, but it's honestly quite difficult to cut back the hours because I need that time to take care of as many things as possible for 88 cups of tea. My ergonomic chair just arrived this week and my laptop stand and external keyboard and mouse should be arriving soon. I'll need at least 10 sessions with my chiropractor before I can get a reevaluation to see how I'm progressing with a pinched nerve. I'm going to be diligent with self-care by being mindful of my posture and taking breaks every two hours to stand up at the desk, along with being consistent with my Cairo appointments. And I'm hoping all of that will speed up my recovery and build good habits to prevent this from happening again. I want to also take this time to thank you wonderful listeners who commented in my recent post in our private Facebook group. Your recommendations on which brands to check out for the keyboards and laptop stands were so helpful. And I was so touched that you also shared links to stretches and exercises that would help me, along with links to items that would help to improve the neck area. Thank you most sincerely for your concern and well wishes. It really means so much to me to hear your genuine concern, and you've honestly made this whole thing a bit easier to handle. I can't even begin to express how much you boosted my morale, and I have so much love for each and every one of you. I've weighed in your concerns and suggestions on how to move forward with my health and with 88 cups of tea. It was really difficult for me to make this decision after realizing it's the best temporary solution. Starting from today, I'm going to release new episodes every other Thursday until I'm able to bring on the right sponsors at a more consistent basis to help offset the cost of having a team to delegate my tasks so I can focus on bigger picture things while having the podcast run more independently. As soon as we get to the point of 88 cups of tea running on its own legs, trust me, I'm going to go back to releasing new episodes every Thursday. And in the meantime, I'm going to take whatever breathing space I can to minimize the hours on my laptop so I can hopefully heal at a faster rate. For those who are connected to me through our Patreon membership or our private Facebook group, I'll share updates with you about all of that. Now on to the next part of our introduction. Thank you so much to all of you who joined our contest to celebrate the soft launch of our Patreon membership and the same contest that was also celebrating the wrap-up of our three-year anniversary milestone. If you missed the announcement on social media, 
Melissa C. and Victoria Lee are the two winners who landed 45 seconds of airtime in the introduction of Tamara Pierce's 88 Cups of Tea podcast episode and our limited edition three-year anniversary tote bag and pop socket. A huge congratulations to Melissa and Victoria. And guess what? I'm celebrating the official launch of our membership on our Patreon page by hosting one final contest for the rest of 2018. Our Patreon membership gives you exclusive access to behind-the-scenes content including commentaries and screen shares of the editing process, sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, access to hear deleted audio, and some of the examples of recent ones are deleted audio from conversations with Holly Root, Nova Rensuma, and many, many more, as well as opportunities to join in on a live interview, receive handwritten postcards from me from my own travels, Watch exclusive videos of me recording the introductions and endings of podcast episodes, a storyteller-themed welcome box that includes a curated selection of my favorite things and a custom 88 Cups of Tea merch, private tea time with me over Skype, and a lot more. Thank you so much to all of you super storytellers who joined our new membership last month during its soft launch. You helped me so much in figuring out the ins and outs of the tools and functions of the Patreon platform so that I understand my way around it. Because of your input and feedback, I am now ready to go full on and share our new membership to the rest of our community. So are you ready to hear what you'll get to win for this contest? One lucky winner will be interviewed by me, where I'll chat with you about your writing journey and about your story. To give you an idea about what an exciting opportunity this is, our rate for sponsors to share their message is valued at hundreds of dollars for a maximum of 60 seconds at the end of our episodes. And just a heads up, our podcast has been downloaded over 300,000 times from listeners. The one lucky winner will receive eight full minutes, which comes out to 420 seconds more than any sponsor would ever receive to share their message at the end of our show. This is a big deal. You'll get the chance to win airtime where our entire community will learn about you and your writing projects. Everyone who's already signed up as a super storyteller on our Patreon is automatically entered into this contest. There are different ways to collect points for this contest, so have a look at the various ways to enter over at 88cupsoftea.com slash contest and come celebrate and support 88 Cups of Tea by collecting as many points as you can for your chance to win. Again, that's 88cupsoftea.com slash contest. You have till Thursday, October 18th to enter for your chance to win. Good luck and have so much fun. Now on to today's conversation, we have Kwame Alexander on the show with us. Kwame is a poet, educator, and the New York Times bestselling author for 28 books, including Swing, Solo, and Rebound, the follow-up to his Newbery Medal-winning middle-grade novel, The Crossover. Some of his other works include Booked, a National Book Award nominee, and many, many more. A regular contributor to NPR's Morning Edition, Kwame is a recipient of numerous awards, including the Coretta Scott King Author Honor, the Lee Bennett Hopkins Poetry Prize, three NAACP Image Award nominations, and the 2017 inaugural Pat Conroy Legacy Award. In today's episode, we navigate our way through Kwame's earlier years as a young reader and a storyteller, touching on the power of poetry and how Kwame uses it to inspire readers. This conversation is full of wisdom and real talk as we discuss Kwame's 26-year overnight success and the challenges of writing-related rejections, being laid off from a job, 
The daily personal woes of being a human being, in particular being an African-American man and how it challenges the view of humanity and of the world. Further into the conversation, we dive into Kwame's journey writing Rebound and how it reflected his own journey writing that story and at the same time, learning to rebound in life while his mother was in the hospital. We talk about inspiration that we need to keep us going through the challenging times of a writer's journey managing writing around daytime jobs, and writing groups. We go into detail about his newest novel, Swing, and what it's like to work with a co-author. At the end of our conversation, we feature the listener question, can Kwame talk about Versify and how he selects manuscripts? Now let's jump right in. Why don't we start with way back, this is going to be a bit of a bigger, bigger question, is when you first fell in love with storytelling? Getting mad at my mother as a kid because she sent me to my room. I did something bad or crazy. I was a a pretty precocious kid into everything. And and so I'd go to my room and slam my door and and she would scream, don't you slam that door again. I'd be in my room pouting and about 10 minutes later she'd come in. She'd recite some poem that was funny, like folks birthing is hard or dying is mean. So why not get yourself a little loving in between? You know, a lengthy youth poem, and then she'd walk out the room, and I couldn't help but smile, or she'd come in singing a song, if you want to be happy for the rest of your life. Or she'd come in and tell a story. She had these amazing African folk tales, The Beautiful Girl Who Has No Teeth, which is this refrain. It's about these three boys. The father wants the oldest son to go and marry the princess, but she has no teeth, so he won't do it. And so the middle son goes, and he, And she doesn't have any teeth, so he won't do it. So the youngest son says, I don't believe either of you. I'm going to go marry the princess. And he's never gotten anything in his life. And he's going to marry the princess. And so he goes to see her and she starts singing. I am a beautiful girl, but I have no teeth. And and my mother's telling this story and I'm just laughing. But I'm supposed to be mad. And, And then she walks out the room. I fell in love with storytelling as a child, you know, listening to my mom tell stories and and listen to my dad preach. My dad was a minister. It's in my blood, man. It's in my, it's in my veins. Oh, I love your mom. Can I just say that? I love her. She's amazing. How lucky you are to have parents that are that loving and supportive. And okay, from there, I remember reading that till about 11 was where you fell out of love with reading because you couldn't find anything that was out there for you that you were interested in. Am I correct? Well, it's sort of, my father was a a serious academic. Both my parents were academics, but my dad was a PhD and college professor and made me read his dissertations at age 11 and wanted me to read all these scholarly works, which I had to do or feel his wrath. So I kind of fell out of love of reading because of that. And nobody kind of like was giving me books either in school or at home that I would have wanted to have read. So I discovered like maybe around 12, this book in my garage by Muhammad Ali. It was his autobiography called The Greatest. It was riveting. I couldn't put it down. And so that reminded me that, hey, reading can be cool. It doesn't have to be so didactic and boring like the books your dad's making you read. So yeah, I discovered some books on my own. And then that sort of sparked my interest in books again. And, and then in high school and college, I began to read more love poems because I felt like it was a way for me to connect with girls. 
my thing was I wasn't very cool. I didn't get cool until very recently. And so I didn't know how to be cool, but I knew how to write because I read so much. And the way you become a good writer is by reading, by borrowing and stealing styles and words and then making it your own. That's how you find your voice. And so I knew how to write. And, and so I thought, well, maybe poetry is a way for me to be able to communicate, express, share what I'm thinking in general about the world and my place in it, and in particular about girls. There is something that you mentioned that rang so true, which is as a child, we're so used to poetry. It just is fascinating where we jump from that to then completely losing that as we get older. In high school, we're introduced to different texts and there's none of that rhythm anymore. For me, I'm just curious, especially you being a master of verse and poetry, why aren't we into it, poetry as much as we were when we were children? Because that's what we grew up with. Yeah, because I mean, I think around fifth or sixth or seventh grade, we get, we get introduced to this poetry that stayed and boring and incomprehensible and it's uninteresting work. We don't enjoy it. The teachers don't, the kids don't. And so you expect a kid to go from Michelle Silverstein to Shakespeare and that's a huge leap to make. Yeah. Like both are great poets, but just completely different levels of complexity and accessibility. And so we lose that. And it's unfortunate because we have this love of poetry and rhythm and rhyme and lullaby as children. I felt like my goal as a writer was to write the kind of text that would be that bridge that would allow us to continue and and remember that, hey, we do love this concise, sparse text with figurative language. But again, it becomes very boring for us when we're reading some of the poetry that's introduced in the curriculum. And that's unfortunate. Yes, I agree with that. And how have you seen kids reacting to your work? Has there been a student that's come up to you that really reminded you of yourself back when you're like 11 years old or 12 years old? And you're like, oh my gosh, this is why I do what I do every day, even though you know why you do what you do every day, but you're grateful for those reminders. Every day. Mm. Every day I'll I'll hear a kid say, "Um, I I, I don't really read books, but I couldn't put yours down. Or, or a parent will text me or a parent will email me and say, uh, Mr. Alexander, you don't know me, but my son or my daughter stayed up till 4 a.m. last night and I went in ready to fuss and I saw them reading your book. And I just got to thank you because it's the first time I've ever seen them that engage with a book. Or like this kid in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who I surprised him at his school and he, he just totally freaked out like I was you know, Lenny Kravitz or something. <gasps> Wait, you what know, do you like, mean you surprised him? Like you already knew of him before and you came to surprise he had, him? He had written me a letter about how <gasps> the crossover changed his life. Get out. You know, and, and how it had helped him realize that he's got to live every moment like it counts and he's got to really embrace life. And this is a seventh grader. And so I, I showed up at his school to surprise him and he just freaked out and he just, you could see it, it had an impact on him. And so I get those kind of responses all the time. And I tell teachers, It started with poetry, like the book is doing the work. These kids don't know me. The books will do the work, but I think we gotta remember that poetry, it doesn't have to be stayed and boring. It can be accessible. It can connect with young people in an immediate way and in an emotionally powerful way. Oh my God, that is so beautiful. Do you know I have goosebumps on my arms right now? (laughs) Just so you know, I'm just like thinking here, what a beautiful, incredibly rewarding work that you are doing. And I can't help but wonder, you know, this is already a legacy that you're leaving and you have still have so much time left. 
on earth. I hope so. Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> Excuse me. Knock on wood. Yes, you do. And I just can't imagine what else you can do. It's just, oh my gosh, it's making me feel like, oh, God, I have so much to catch up on. So for you, how? what else? Because there's so much time you have, but you've already accomplished so freaking much more than most people on this planet. What else you can envision that you hope to leave as a legacy? Like you still have double the time left. So like what? That's so funny you say that because like five years ago, I remember telling myself, man, you better hurry up and do something. Are you crazy? Your life's about to end. You're about to be over. Oh, wow. (laughs) Thanks a lot for making us all feel like crap, by the way. Thank you very much. I mean, I think that's the point is that it sounds cliche. It sounds corny. But really, it's not about the destination. It's about the journey. Yes, that is true. If you really look like if you take yourself, for instance, how many podcasts have you done? Yeah, nearly 150. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I I haven't I haven't hosted one podcast. Like you've done 150. That's insane to think that you've done 150 podcasts. That's such an accomplishment. And I think we got to take these moments in our lives and recognize what we're doing to make an impact, to make this world a better place because we are living our dreams. And Certainly, we want to do more, but the deal is we want to do more of what we're doing. Waking up each day, saying yes to what's possible in life, hugging life, embracing it, and trying to make this world a better place. And to the degree that I can do that by writing books, by traveling and speaking, by writing television and film, by being on an amazing podcast, 88 Cups of Tea, to spread my my love (laughs) of words, then I feel like I'm doing my job. But Mm. yeah, it never ends. You always want to keep building and and getting better and making more of an impact. So yeah, I mean, what that means, I don't know. Maybe it means I have a TV series next year that will incorporate my love of poetry. Or maybe it means I'm going to write a play or or maybe it means that I'm going to start an imprint and publish other authors. Which I've done, by the way. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, we just keep moving forward. You're so positive. You're so motivating and you're so inspiring. Truly. Have you ever even seen dark times like struggles? Because you're so positive. You remind me of my mom. She's so positive where even the dark times, she won't even be negative. Like she's still positive and she's like, well, switch it off. Let's go. And she doesn't even realize that there were dark times. For you, are you somebody that's hit rock bottom? And if you're if you're comfortable sharing that, like what was that? And also, were you realizing at the moment or you didn't realize it till much after because you are so positive? Well, I think thank you for the kind words. And I will say that I choose to focus on the positive, mm-hmm. you know, that I choose I choose not to try to stay in those spaces where the nose can sort of define me. But yeah, they happen all the time. I'm a 26-year overnight success. I <laughs> love those, that. Yeah, yeah. In those 26 years, yeah, I've had dozens of rejections in terms of getting my writing published. I've had, you know, 22 different jobs. Well, the reason I had 22 different jobs is because, one, I never really wanted to have a full-time gig for a long period of time because I didn't want to get too comfortable. I wanted to be a writer. 
I wanted mm-hmm. to make a living from writing. Um, and the second reason I never had a job for more than a year or two is because I got laid off. Mm-hmm. So when you get laid off, that's a pretty painful kind of thing. When you go to work one day and they say, clean out your desk, especially when you have a family. So, so whether you're talking about rejections with your writing, whether you're talking about getting laid off from a job, whether you're talking about just the daily personal woes of being a human being. And in particular, being an African-American man, if, if, you wake up and you see that some police officer has gone into an apartment that was not hers and saw a black man in there and shot him and killed him. Like that weighs on you emotionally, spiritually. It challenges your whole humanity and your whole view of the world. And so there's a certain level of, of negativity that goes along with that. There's personal and public and professional and all kinds of woes. I choose to focus on the wonders of the world and deal with the woes in my writing because it helps me cope. It helps me deal. When I was writing Rebound, which was the novel that came out in April, it was the, uh, it's the prequel to the crossover. When I was writing that, my mom was in the hospital. And I'm I was so sitting sorry. In the, thank you. Thank you. And I was in the hospital with her. And she didn't want anyone else in there but me. And so Rebound is about a, a boy named Chuck Bell who's 12 years old who just lost his dad. And he's, he's grieving and he's trying to figure out how to rebound in his life. And it's hard. And my mother, while I'm in the hospital, she tells me she's about to die. And she's telling me all this stuff she wants me to do. And, and it occurs to me that I'm writing a book about a boy who's got to learn how to rebound in life from a death. And I'm about to deal with the same thing. And it was the hardest book to write. And I got to tell you, it helped me. It helped me cope. It helped me heal. It helped me deal. I'll never be the same. I'll never be okay with it. But that book, writing it, helped me. And so I think the writing is what allows me to stay in this space of um, embrace life, say yes to it. Um, You get one shot at this. So you better find a way to to hug the joy out of it. Kwame, I have tears in my eyes right now. My nose is swollen, by the way. Uh, um, uh. Thank, you, thank you for sharing that. It'll resonate with a lot of us. I keep very close ties with the podcasting community through a private Facebook group. And a lot of them, I notice, are in that in-between of being parents, but also having to parent their own parents. And their parents are at the age where several have lost their parents as well. And have been in the hospital and my parents are getting older. So it's a lot of things where you shift from thinking about, you know, chasing what's the next thing, what's the next thing to then realizing, oh, shit, I need to stop right now. Look at what I'm doing. Appreciate that. But also keep pushing forward and take every opportunity and don't slow down because of any rejection or any kind of insecurity thinking that we can't do whatever we want to do because time is short reminders like having our parents pass is a very hard awakening in a way so thank you for sharing that oh you're so welcome this sunday morning is getting (laughs) real emotional for me jeez thanks a lot kwame i'm sorry oh my gosh thank you no seriously thank you for that my mission also is really to push the listeners to realize whatever place they're in 
you got to keep moving forward, but also to be human and to love those around us and to make that time for our loved ones. I also do want to ask you, okay, real talk here, because you were talking about juggling these different jobs and wanting to be a writer, but also having to support your family. I am not a published writer. I come from it as someone from entertainment background acting who loves storytelling, who loves giving platforms to storytellers and who loves to champion storytellers. So for me, I always see stories where writers are struggling with day job, balancing that and surviving and putting food on the table for their children or for themselves or even helping out their parents to the point where they come home, they're exhausted, they do not have time to work on their craft. But when they do, it's to the point where they're so drained from the day that it feels like it's pulling teeth when it's trying to work on their own writing and they feel like their fire is dulled and it's just completely stomped out. How from your own experiences would you share with our community to survive as a writer, but also not let their passions die out, to still have a love for it? So that's a great question. I guess the first thing I would say is everything in this world that is good and accomplished requires work. Like first and foremost, I believe that The universe is conspiring to give us what we want, what we need, what we desire, what we deserve. I believe that the world, the universe is is conspiring to do that. I believe that the only way for that to actually happen is that you got to put in the work. And so maybe it was 1992, I had written my first book of love poems which I got to tell you were pretty corny. (laughs) I am a dawn ocean thrusting my midnight waves. (laughs) I could go on, but But I believe that it was the best poem, the best poetry in the freaking world. Looking back on it, I can't stand to read that book. Do not go Google it, listeners. (laughs) Do not go and Google it. But in the moment, I felt like it was the best thing ever. I'd go to poetry readings, open mics, poetry slams. I got rejected everywhere, hundreds of rejections. I I ended up publishing the book myself in 1994. I traveled around the country selling the books. I had a thousand copies of it, sold a bunch of books, and ended up in a place called Los Angeles and had a book signing at a church. And in the church, the pastor asked me to come up after her sermon and and read from my book. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. I got really suggestive love poems and I'm in a church. So how is this going to go over? But I said, yes. And I read this love poem in front of 400 churchgoers. I have never been a slave, yet I know I am whipped. I have never been to Canada, yet I hope to cross your border. I have never traveled underground, yet the night knows my journey. If I were a poet in love, I'd say that with you. I have found that new place where romance is just a beginning and freedom is our end. And there was like complete silence, and this woman in the back of the church was like, hallelujah. (laughs) I sold like 160 books. Wow. 
that was fire and fuel for me to like say I could do this. It's on. And then maybe the next year, I couldn't afford an apartment and had to live on the floor of my my buddy's place because I wasn't making any money from book sales. And maybe the next year I got a temp job and and kept writing, but I wasn't really making any money. I had a girlfriend. I had to walk to her house. I couldn't really take her out. But I still had that moment of selling those 160 books in that church in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles to, to, to be the fuel to keep me going. Mm-hmm. I think you got to keep putting in the work and you got to build on those successes. How can you bottle that success that you have in these moments, that inspiration? So when you need it for those times when you're in the valley, how can you bottle it and, and, and pull it out and say, OK, but I still got that. And I think I did that. I did that every year. I did it every day. I did it for 26 years. And I mean, when in 2015, when my life completely changed, on February 2nd, after 20, you know, three years of having done this, I had been laid off from my job like two months before and was in the process of my wife telling me, okay, it's time to start looking for a job again, dude. So it was very close. It was very near to me, this reality of, man, you really haven't come that far. But I still had those moments that said, you know what? You just got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it. You got to keep doing it because... There are going to be these, you know, there are going to be successes because you've had them. I just didn't know that on February 2nd, the success would be the one that would change my life forever, winning the Newbery Medal. So I think it's those little successes that those little bottles of inspiration that we keep stored in the refrigerators of our hope and dreams. Oh, and we that's got, we, so good. Bonnie? <laughs> it's, it's real. It's real. <laughs> Enough with your legendary stuff, okay? I'm sorry, I'm not Jeez. a legend. Give us some space to make some potions for ourselves, okay? Listen, you are brilliant. That was beautiful. And you know what I also hear on top of that is that I love how supportive your wife was through this whole journey. That's something that we also talk about on this podcast, on the show, is that, yes, you can have as much fire for yourself, right? If you are capable of it and you put your mind to it. But If you are in a partnership or in a space where you're surrounded by people who don't believe in you, forget it. That's going to be, it's going to be a thousand times harder. It is difficult as F to even try and move on because you love these people so much. So you hold close and hold dear what their opinions are of you. And if you are not around people who support you and believe in you, that definitely cramps your artistry. I'm with a woman, I'm with a girl, and she is in the restaurant world. So she is a restaurateur, and I'm an artist. And the thing is, sometimes we clash, we butt heads, because she's so freaking practical that it drives me nuts sometimes, (laughs) where it's like, you should be believing in me, I shouldn't have to sometimes fight for you to believe in me. Like, although I feel like that happens rarely, I just don't like it if I ever come across that. But then for you... Is your wife like the practical business or is she in the artistry creativity world as well? She's completely practical in business. And do you think that's why it also has helped you thrive? Yes. The short answer is yes. I think she's completely practical in business. And at the same time, she's like, I recognize that part of the reason I love you is because you are you. And part of you, a big part of you, is your art. 
And so when we got engaged, I remember again, we sat down in Ruby Tuesday. I had a turkey burger. <laughs> and I was I was maybe six, seven years into my writerly career. I'd had a play produced. The Washington Post had reviewed it. I'd written four books. One of them had sold maybe 13,000 copies. I had had some modicum of success, but not really. Like, I was still broke. My credit was bad. I didn't have anything. Like, really, but I had, the perception was that I was great in my town. I was doing good. And so we sat down on Ruby Tuesday. You know, she had accepted my, my marriage proposal. And she said, I want you to be successful. I want you to be a writer. Now, Yen also, in order to get her to court me, I had written her a poem a day for one year. Are you joking? That was my courting because I didn't have anything. And so, 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 so she was intimately aware and involved with my writerly life. She got it. And so we sat down with Ruby Tuesday and she said, look, I want you to be the best writer ever. I support you. I'll be at your readings. I'll, I'll, I'll help you however I need to. But the day we get married, you better have a job with benefits. <sighs> she said that like four or five months before the wedding in Ruby Tuesday. And she didn't say it like in a mean way. She was like, just matter of factly, oh, have a job with benefits. And it was like either I said yes or it was clear or this isn't going to happen. Wow. But w was she saying that you're still open to balancing writing on top of that job? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I, that's what I had done. All my temp jobs and jobs, I contract jobs. I had, I had written on the bus to work. I'd written during lunchtime, written at night. You know, I'd done because I, I needed to do it. I loved it. It was my passion. It was the thing I wanted to do. And I understood if I was a writer, then I needed to, to write. Like that first and foremost, I had to figure out a time to write. There were no excuses. Oh, I got to work. I got to do this. No, if you this is what you want to do, you do it. And so she was like, yeah, do it, man, do it. But uh, get a job. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so matter of fact. And, and, I, and then she went on to another subject like, ooh, the Rockets are playing the Knicks tonight. Like it was just nothing. That is my girlfriend, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that is my girlfriend. And I was like, excuse me, I understand, but my art can be the one supporting. But yes, I... I feel like also both of them, what they have in common is that it also adds fuel to our fire where we almost want to push harder with our art to prove that we can do it. I mean, that's how I feel when my girlfriend says something like that to me too. Do you feel like it helped to add fuel to your work? Yeah, we got married on May 20th. I had a job on January 15th. I got a job and it was a good job making real money with benefits. Here's what it did for me. It got me married, number one. <laughs> At least you got her locked in, okay? Right. Number two, it made me feel a sense of, of self-worth or, or something. It made me feel good. I don't know what, how to describe it, but it made me feel good to be able to do that and to be committed to that. Mm. And it showed me that it was possible for me to, for me to do this and, you know, at the same time, still write. Because, I mean, over the next... 10, 12 years, um, I wrote a book a year. Yeah. So it let me do that. Yes, and then, that's true. you know, I think ultimately it fueled me in a, in another way that I hadn't been fully aware of. And, 
and allowed me to do things that I needed to have done that cleared out, that cleared out the basement of my life so that I could start storing other things that were more sustainable and substantial and, and much more meaningful. So, you know, I got my credit in order. I paid off my student loans. Once all that stuff got cleared out the way and I was free to sort of welcome all the other stuff that was waiting to get in there. Yeah. I had the room then to then get to where I needed to be. Okay, so are you also a couples therapist on top of that? Because no, you not just at all. <laughs> definitely gave me a very refreshing outlook and you helped me take in my girlfriend's words to me very objectively and differently rather than personally now. Because I took it so personally as if it was a hit on my work and a hit on my artistry as if she didn't believe in me. But now hearing your story with your wife and how also for you cleared out your quote unquote basement. Honestly, I have to thank you. I feel like you just saved me hours of couples therapy. So thank you so much. I appreciate you on a Sunday morning for chatting with me about this. Welcome to 88 Cups of Tea with Kwame Alexander. (laughs) Today I have a guest. (laughs) On top of everything that he's doing, he's also a therapist. And thank you for really touching on that, like real talk. And this is something also I do want to segue over as well. And I just want to make sure I touch on this because I don't want it to like get in the back of my head. When you're talking about being in America, seeing somebody getting shot literally just for how they look, this is something I've been very frustrated about. And I think also from my own personal experiences, obviously all of ours are different, but me being with a woman, being Asian American, I'm frustrated. I'm really freaking frustrated. I see there is, you know, people are trying to open up for quote unquote diversity in the book publishing world. But I don't see the reflection in real life where I want there to be more progress and more movement as does everybody. So I'm frustrated and I feel like, what am I doing with this artistry? Am I making a difference? How am I making a difference to the point where it does reflect in the real world and not just on paper or in the media? I do my best to create a platform, to share stories, to talk about stories from people we don't usually hear from but when i see the news and what's happening in the world i feel like sometimes like god is the shit that we're doing is that enough how do you think from your perspective how i can go forth or how artists overall and writers can go forth creating that difference but also actually seeing it reflect in the world yeah 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 no i hear you i think there's never enough being done but you always got to do something And so what are you doing to help make this world a better place? Like, what are you doing personally? What are you doing professionally? It's not going to happen overnight, but, and it's, and it's going to be challenging and it's going to be a lot of work, but I just feel like you got to do something. Mm -hmm. And yes. And so in publishing in particular, there's this movement for, we need diverse books, Mm -hmm. which I'm a huge proponent of, I'm even more of a proponent of the notion that we need diverse thinking people. So I feel like diverse books would happen, would come if, if people had diverse lives. Ah, okay. Like living it, like not just, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. 
who are the people you eat dinner with? Who are the people you socialize mm-hmm. with? Like, yes. if you claim you want a more diverse publishing community or a mer- more diverse Hollywood, mm-hmm. like, who's over at your house? Who do you mm-hmm. go to church with? Who are your kids having sleepovers with? Like, and if you want to take it even deeper, especially in publishing, if I came to your house and I looked on your bookshelves, do the books on your shelf reflect the kind of world you claim you want? Yes. Preach to that. Yes. You know, so let's live, let's live a diverse life. Not like shallow or on the surface or symbolically. I'm saying be authentic, like get to know people. You know, especially your children. So that's what I think about. So good. Okay. I love that. I love that you're saying just practice this in real life and actually live it authentically, not just preaching it. Because I do see, I do notice a lot of preaching, just observing from the outer lens rather than people actually living. So that's a great point that you brought up. And Yes, truly. It does start with the children, too, especially with the children, because that is our generation that is going to change everything. Right. I'm here to learn. I'm here to be open to as many variations of solutions. I do notice this energy of people taking concerns and issues and challenges and difficulties more seriously. I definitely feel that energy, which is a good thing. It's a positive thing. But I also feel like, oh, God, I just want it to finally tip over and get to that other side but we're still on that side of pushing and pushing so you're right just show up and be that person that living model right thank you kwame and i now would love to talk about swing if that's okay yes i'm so excited so for listeners who haven't yet heard of swing would you mind giving a snapshot i think swing is probably the most difficult book i've ever written Um, I wrote it with my writing partner, Mary Rand Hess, and we set out to write a love story because we both love writing about love. Mm -hmm. Um, It's set against the backdrop of of baseball and jazz music. And it's about um, uh, a kid who's trying to find cool, two two best friends who are trying to find cool. They they feel like they're uncool and and they think maybe baseball can help them find cool if they can make the team or... Or or, or 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 jazz music can make them cool and and then and one of the the best friends has been in love with his his uh, his other best friend a girl named Sam since since uh, elementary school and and they're juniors in high school now and so he hasn't ever told her and so now he's he's going to uh, go down this path of getting the courage and the and the tools to be able to finally confess his love for her. And, and he does. And it's about sort of, you know, how that comes to be, how, how he finds his cool, how they find their cool, how they find their place in this world. And I think ultimately it's about what happens when the world responds in, in, not, in, in not so beautiful a way. That's what swing is about. You know, also, without giving away too much, it's, it's got a little bit of a twist. There's an ending that is unexpected. It's like a, a pitch that comes out of nowhere that you miss. What was the most challenging part about writing this story? Uh, writing the ending, which was kind of tough to write. But I guess the other part of it was, again, I think writing with a partner is hard. 
Yeah, I was going to you ask know, that too because yeah. it's not one brain. You're trying to run it through with her too. Right. And I was on tour. I was writing another book at the same time. And so I was writing two novels on tour and writing that that second novel, Swing, with my co-writer. So it was just, it was a lot going on. And then the subject matter proved to be a little bit challenging. So all of that combined, it made it for a challenging process. But I feel like it's my best book. I want to dig a little bit deeper about your writing partner and you and your work, because I think that's something that is so so challenging, just the technicalities of that. And on top of that, you said you were on tour writing all these other novels. Is this something where you were saying, okay, I'm going to take care of this point of view, you take care of that point of view, or I work on this chapter, you work on that chapter, you run it by me and I'll run it by you. How was that technicality like? I can't tell you all my secrets. (laughs) I can't tell you all my secrets. Dang it! But I will say this. Can't give us breadcrumbs? (laughs) I will say this. There were some scenes that Mary would write, and then I'd write the next scene. There were some poems where Mary would write one stanza, and I'd write the next. There were some poems that I would write, and she would go and rewrite. There were some poems that I would write, and I couldn't figure out the metaphor. And Mary, I would say, Mary, I need a metaphor here. And she would go in and fix the metaphor. Um, there, were, there were a couple times where Mary would write 100 pages. And then I go and rewrite it. Um, there came a point where we threw away the entire draft of the book. Oh, my God. What? Um, and then I rewrote it. I mean, so there's just so many different ways. There is no formula. Um, in the last week, we'd sit in my writing studio and I'd say, uh, Mary, I need a poem um, where the main characters are getting gas at 7-Eleven and they run into this person. Can you write that? And it shouldn't be any more than 30 lines. And she'd sit there over the next hour and draft that while I worked on another poem. So it really just varied. Um, There were some mixed media artwork in the book, I think maybe seven or eight pieces. Mary did all of those because she's a mixed media artist. Incredible. How did you come across Mary? Mary and I were in a writing group um, maybe about five years ago. Um, and so we started off, it was four of us, Mary, Anne-Marie, Sue, and myself, and we're all in a writing group. We meet every day during the summer. Um, we meet throughout the year. And on one of those occasions, the two of us decided we wanted to work on a book together, something she had started. And that became, um, a a novel called Solo that came out last year. This is so exciting to hear that you're in writing groups. Like, are you still in a writing group? Um, I'm sort of in, in the same writing group. We don't meet as much because everybody's busy and Mary moved to California. She's in LA now. But yeah, we, we, we're still in it. We still have, we still say we have our writing group. Oh, I and love- it helps. It really helps. I was going to ask, how do you think that's impacted your career? Your oh writing career? To have people you trust, that you, that you love, that are good writers, that can give you immediate feedback, that can call you on your BS, that can tell you that's whack. Um, and do it from a space of love. It's it, and people you can laugh with. Uh, we go on a writing retreat like maybe once a year to <gasps> to a lake a lake house. We have <sighs> such a good time. Yeah, it's wonderful. Oh my gosh, how'd you find them? Ooh, I wish I knew. Like I <laughs> fell into this. I had been asking people to start a writing group for years, and nobody wanted to do it, or they weren't serious. And then I had this one friend named Leslie Evans, who's a children's book author, and she said, "Well." I know a lot of people who want to start a writing group in my circle. So let's all get together at Wegmans. 
So it was like seven of us. She brought us all together. And from that seven, four of us sort of, you know, ended up doing a group together. So I don't know if they're, I don't know how to do it. I really don't. I just sort of got lucky. So all you have to do is just be awesome like you and then boom, <laughs> they'll come find you. Done and done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, what you, that's what you do. There you go. All right. Perfect. Should be easy enough, right? Oh gosh. Everybody wish us luck. Okay. Now I'm going to swing it back to swing. Oh, I love that. I just said that. Yeah. Perfect. I know you were saying that it was really just writing this book overall, especially the topic was very difficult. Was there research involved for this writing process or was it very much pulled from you and Mary? I'm a huge jazz fan, been for years. So I know a lot about jazz, but there was a little bit of research just to fine tune some stuff. Like the main character, one of the main characters, Walt, is obsessed with how uh, famous people died. And so, of course, I didn't know a lot of that. So I had to research a lot of a lot about, uh, you know, Bob Marley, how he died and uh, Benny Goodman, how he died, Duke Ellington and so forth. Art. I had just left the Louvre in France. And so I I, I incorporated a lot of that into the book. Uh, Mary's a mixed media artist, so she didn't have to do a whole lot of research because that's her field. Um, so yeah, it wasn't a whole lot of research. Uh, it was a realistic, uh, it's realistic contemporary fiction. Wow. Okay. So a lot of emotional labor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. What is the one thing, if you could just have everyone take one thing away from this book, what would you want our community to take away? To embrace the full humanity of, of all of us, to make sure that, that, that you treat people how, how you would want to be treated. To, to, to expand your imagination, to see the value in, in human beings, no matter where they live, no matter how they talk, no matter where they go to church, no matter how they look. That'd be the one thing. That's beautiful. All right. Do you mind if I squeeze in a listener question? I'll select just one. Sure, um, sure. Who I actually touched on Versify, and I think that would be fantastic just for the rest of the community to hear. Lynn Fairchild Hawk said that She's so excited that you, a groundbreaking author, a gem of a human, will be on the podcast. And she said she loved the crossover and have he said, she said in her to be read pile. And she asked, can Kwame talk about Versify and how he selects manuscripts? What is he looking for? Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for those kind words. I'm glad you liked the crossover, uh, Lynn. Um, Versify is my imprint at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, and I'm publishing other authors. And I like to tell people that for so many years in publishing, um, their publishing has been like a dinner party and there's been a few people invited to the party and there's usually like a couple seats that are empty. And every now and then there'll be a special guest who gets to come in and shine and share in the food and the conversation. But for the most part, it's the same people at the party. I want to bring more people to the table. I want more people to be able to enjoy the party and experience the meal and share their culinary expertise. So I'm going to bring more people to the dinner party. I want to publish good books. I like to call it intelligent entertainment, books that are going to inspire, entertain, electrify, and ultimately engage and empower young people. I do wish that we would do video recording sometimes because <laughs> I have the biggest smile on my face and I'm here in the back, like nodding my head, shaking my head in such happiness. I just loved it because I could imagine all those images of you having this beautiful dinner party and everyone telling their stories and amplifying what they have to say. And if you could wrap it up and let our writers know 
if there's a book, whether it's a craft book on craft writing or a really amazing solid book that's inspired you and your work for our listeners to check out and to learn for their own writing, I'd really appreciate it. Well, that's a good question. Two books, I would say, maybe like a, a collection of poems by Mary Oliver or mm. Pablo Neruda. I find those like yes. maybe Pablo Neruda's 20 Love Sonnets. That's kind of cool. And then, of course, the book that I still find inspiring to this day is Stephen King's book on writing. Mm, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just just for some inspiration and encouragement. I say read that. Um, yeah. Perfect. Okay. Where can everybody find you on social media? At Kwame Alexander. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Check me out. I also have a show on Facebook Watch called Bookish. And Yen, are you in New York? I am in New York. All right, yeah, we're shooting season two of Bookish, and I need to have you as a guest. Oh, my God, you're so sweet. What an honor. Get out of here. Yes, yes, we need to be on camera together having this much fun. Oh, my gosh, done and done. I'm there. You so rock. I've never met an actress who is more effervescent and ebullient, like, on radio. Like, how do you do this? You're amazing. And that wraps up our episode with Kwame Alexander. Oh my God, I just had to leave that last tidbit in there because it made my morning. Kwame, you already know this because I've said it a thousand times already, but you are so awesome. Thank you for that incredibly open and transparent conversation about life. I had a fantastic time and I'm so thrilled we got the chance to do this. Have the best time on your tour and happy book birthday to you and swing. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to say hi to Kwame on Twitter over at Kwame Alexander. To access Kwame's show notes page, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Kwame dash Alexander. Don't forget, celebrate the announcement of the official launch of our Patreon membership for Super Storytellers by joining our final contest of 2018. The lucky winner will be interviewed by me where I'll chat with you about your writing journey and your story. To give you an idea about what an exciting opportunity this is, our rate for sponsors to share their message is valued at hundreds of dollars for a maximum of 60 seconds at the end of our episodes. And a friendly reminder, our podcast has been downloaded over 300,000 times. The one lucky winner will receive eight full minutes of airtime, which comes out to 420 seconds more than any sponsor would ever receive to share their message at the end of our show. This is a massive deal. You'll get the chance to win airtime where our entire community will learn about you and your writing project. If you already joined our membership before the start of this contest, you are automatically entered into this contest with eight points. There are different ways to collect points for this contest, so have a look through at the various ways to enter over at 88cupsoftea.com slash contest. And come celebrate and support 88 Cups of Tea by collecting as many points as you can for your chance to win. Again, that's 88cupsoftea.com slash contest. You have till Thursday, October 18th to enter for your chance to win. Good luck and have so much fun. I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the Thursday after that. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.